All right. Welcome to our experience, ASCP's podcast. We are in season two, and we are thrilled to welcome back to our podcast Antonio Chacha, who um, not only uh, is a, a frequent flyer of our podcast, um, but also was our keynote speaker at our annual meeting in Orlando this past November. So, Antonio, welcome. Welcome back. Um, we did get great reviews from your keynote. In fact, um, even before we talked before this podcast, we've had more requests for, is it okay if I share the video of Antonio's presentation with my leadership team at my pharmacy? So um, we've gotten a number of those, which of course is perfectly fine. They can do that. Um, but what just, a bunch of nerds. Yeah. But like, I think that it just speaks to the, it, you know, it resonates. It's important to pharmacists um, and, and what you are, have done and are doing and continue to shine a light on is, is critical to our profession. So we appreciate that. And we appreciate you being on. It was a great conference. It was great to be there. So let's get into it. Like, I, I, I don't know where to start other than it's 2024. We're in an election year. We've got this pending PBM legislation out there that I don't know, you know, I think when anybody hears that both sides are coming after PBMs, we're all like, yeah, great. But uh, is the legislation any good? Is it going to change things? And sort of what are the new landmines this year as we navigate this process? The good news for everybody is Congress has figured out not just how to spell PBM, but what they actually do, at least at varying degrees of, of, of intelligence, right? I think um, it's encouraging that, you know, as, look, I, I'm a, I, I tend to focus on history when it comes to pharmacy and drug pricing. Historically speaking, PBMs have enjoyed a great anonymity from a regulator's perspective at the federal level. And I think because pharmacy organizations have done a good job um, elevating some of the issues, but also pharmaceutical companies, wholesalers, patients, you know, everybody's talking about PBMs, not because it's, quote, their turn, but because their impact is, is increasingly more significant over time. I look back to the congressional hearing back in 2016 as really the first moment that PBMs got their uncomfortable moment in the sun, and that was when Heather Bresch, the then CEO of Mylan, uh, was being uh, was under congressional assault, if you will, for the prices of epipens, and she let the you know proverbial toothpaste out of the out of the toothpaste tube. That look, if you're upset about the price, what if I told you that we're not even getting all that money? And so she started talking about the rebates, and and then over time we started to learn more about insulin. Pharmacists were bellyaching about issues around spread pricing, DIRPs, et cetera. But you know. Run up to today, every major committee of jurisdiction is investigating PBMs. The Federal Trade Commission has their own investigation. Uh, states across the country are taking a, a much greater laser focus on how PBMs impact the drug pricing world. And look, if you're like an anti-regulation person in general, then maybe this isn't your cup of tea. But if you're somebody who thinks the government has at least some degree of a role in better calibrating the prescription drug marketplace, you know, for the purpose of creating a more affordable environment for patients and plan sponsors, then regulation can be a tool, one of many tools, to possibly bring an industry that's kind of gone out of control better under thumb, or at least 
create better incentives. And so the policies that are currently being discussed are really centered around not eliminating PBMs, but again, trying to restore them to their origin story, which was acting as a firefighter, if you will, against high drug prices, not an enabler or rewarder of high drug prices. Yeah, I, I see the government, um, everything you said is, is true, and they're, they're really starting to kind of maneuver through this and understand this. But what I'm concerned about is they'll make a decision, and it might actually be counterproductive. And so what I mean by that is DIR fees. That was a big topic of the last couple of years. Government stepped in, and now we're in a situation the first quarter, if you're a retail pharmacy and you have DIR fees, where you're getting that, that double whammy, right? You're getting Q4 DIR fees, and then your reimbursement's lower. And so there's a you know, an opportunity there for actually more pharmacies to shut down, more pharmacies to struggle and 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 go into bankruptcy. So what do you what, what do you think that the best policy that con Congress can do or the government can do that can really truly protect us and not just make shift the problem or make it worse? Well, if the question is really from a pharmacy perspective, right? Well, pharmacy, regardless of how the system is going to be designed, whether you have DIR fees, no DIR fees, spread pricing, no spread pricing, effective rate clawbacks, no effective rate clawbacks, NADAC-based pricing, whatever it is, right? At the end of the day, pharmacy's big challenge is, is that it is overmatched at this point. Uh, industry consolidation or horizontal uh, consolidation in the PBM marketplace um, has created an arms race, if you will. Um, in the United States, we talk a lot about trying to move towards value-based payment models for medicines and for healthcare services. I think those are great goals, arguably, you know, exercises in imperfection, but a strive towards value-based payments in general is something that I think we should all philosophically um, uh, embrace, right? The problem is, is we don't buy medicines in a value-based world. We buy them in a volume-based world. You can get bigger and better discounts and concessions the bigger you become. And so PBMs have created a lot of artificial value in negotiating big, bogus, inflated discounts off big, bogus, inflated prices. And so a lot of PBM activity has incentivized higher sticker prices at both the pharmacy and the drug manufacturer. And they are negotiating big savings off of those inflated prices, essentially becoming the arsonist and firefighter of high drug prices. Regardless, the system creates tremendous value for those who are large, large and sophisticated and can negotiate bigger discounts off those inflated prices. So as a result, payers strive to consolidate purchasing power through PBMs to create a better discount off of inflated price. So what that means is that for a pharmacy, you might you know, be looking at the big three PBMs accounting for anywhere from 60, 70, 80, 90% of all your revenue from a payer's perspective. When an entity has that much power over a provider, regardless of how you curate policy, there's probably not enough protections to help you if you're that outsized at the negotiating table. So back to that question, where do you think Congress can step in and say, this is what we need to pass? So the example that I give is if they passed one law, transparency. 
if they just tra passed a transparency law that require PBMs to show everything, I think all these other kinds of regulations and laws will, will, will pop up. Where's that kind of that, that, that sweet spot, do you think, on, on based on what we've seen Congress talk about at this point or propose at this point? So first I'll say philosophically, right, and, and I don't have a specific policy in mind, but I want to talk about philosophy here, is that if the system today is designed to provide disproportionate rewards to size, right, what we need to do from a system perspective is have incentives built in such a way that size and scale matter less, and that the ultimate quality of the underlying medicine and provider essentially are elevated from an incentive perspective. So I think we need to, from a policy perspective, we need to transition ourselves away from this volume-based purchasing and reimbursement model and towards one that is more predicated upon value. You know, look, if the current marketplace today says, look, the bigger you are, the better value you can create for yourself, right? Well, then what that means is that the largest pharmacy chains, the largest wholesalers, the largest manufacturers will inherently make more money relative to smaller marketplace counterparts. But what we know is that sometimes the largest pharmacies, the largest wholesalers, and the large manufacturers may not actually pro be producing a better value proposition to the patient and their outcomes. So I think in general, we need to de-emphasize the importance of size and scale and greater emphasize the underlying value of the quality of the medicine and the quality of the provider rendering the service. So. That's the philosophy, right? I think that that has to be a very purposeful endeavor. And I think regardless of, of whether or not we try to do that in the commercial marketplace where there's arguments whether or not, you know, it's it makes sense to regulate that space, certainly the federal government can take a leadership role in the way that Medicaid and Medicare, the Department of Veterans Affairs, the Federal Office of Personnel Management, all those things, all government money essentially flows dollars through the drug channel. Mm -hmm. Now, to an individual policy perspective, Right. One of the things that we're that we're seeing right now is that there's a big pressure. There's a lot of pressure to, to ban spread pricing. There's a lot of pressure to delink PBM compensation off the list prices of medicines. I think that from an intent perspective, those are fantastic endeavors. Uh, as, as, as the guy who helped Ohio uncover their two hundred and forty five million dollars spread pricing debacle back in twenty eighteen, I know firsthand the harm that spread pricing can create for the end payer and the pharmacy provider, because spread pricing works by paying pharmacies as low as possible, billing a plan sponsor as high as possible and pocketing that difference, right? Delinking PBM compensation philosophically makes sense because in the current model, PBMs make more money when prices are higher. And so the intent of the policy is to ensure that PBMs have a more agnostic compensation model such that they are not incentivized to favor high-priced medicines but instead might be better positioned, financially speaking, to favor less expensive medicines. Those are good, reasonable attempts at recalibrating the PBM's incentives. But from a pharmacy perspective, one could argue there's not much there for them within those policies, right? There's nothing that's ultimately attacking that underlying flaw in the model, again, from a pharmacy business perspective, mm -hmm. that the bigger you are, the bigger you can bully. Yeah. And so PBMs are success are being highly successful at bullying that pharmacy marketplace. Obviously, the smaller the pharmacy, the the greater the power of that bully is. Yeah, makes sense. So, in terms of what is cir currently circulating through Congress, do you see any 
is are those pieces of legislation that are working against PBMs? Is there value there? Is it a half step? Is it not valuable? What's your opinion of what Congress is doing? Well, I think I think the first thing to acknowledge is that I think the nature of the policy design shows a sophistication that has been lacking historically, right? If if they understand what spread pricing is, if they understand the twisted incentives that PBMs have to favor high-priced medicines, I view that as an educational accomplishment, if for nothing else, right? From an actual policy perspective, I will concede I'm not an attorney. And the thing I know about PBM policy is walk with caution, right? Is that there are great intentions, but actually threading the needle to achieve intent, intent is a different story. So there was a, a, an, op, an editorial in Bloomberg News uh, here at the beginning of January that urged that very thing that said, look, you know, we understand the impetus for PBM policy reforms, but we also must acknowledge that this is a very complicated arena, not just because of the complications of drug pricing, but the complications of vertical integration in the PBM marketplace. Mm -hmm. So when you're trying to accomplish a certain policy, not only do you wanna make sure that, you can, that you're actually attacking what, what you are intending to attack, but furthermore, you need to make sure the policy is holistic enough such that you don't just move where the ball is hidden, yeah. right? So if you wanna attack rebates, which traditionally flow from manufacturers to PBMs, well, what do PBMs do? They create their own group purchasing organizations or rebate aggregators to live now in between that transaction. And so they can start capitalizing on the old scams around rebate capture, whereas the PBM used to do those things. It's still the same company, it's just different layers. So again, it, I think that the philosophical push for delinking if I was advising an employer, as an example, I would say you should not have spread pricing in your contract and your PBM shouldn't make more money when list prices go up. So if that's what I would advise a client in the employer space, from a congressional perspective, I would argue that they are taking the right philosophical approaches, the same ones that I would recommend to a plan sponsor in the, in the open marketplace. Good. And so with that said, CVS came out with a big announcement that they're going to start two new programs in 2025, Cost Vantage, which is that cost-based reimbursement, and then the, the Caremark True Cost, which is around potentially sharing rebates with patients, which I'm not quite sure how that's going to work out. But with that said, do you think that's the right direction to move? Is that just a response to what Mark Cuban's been doing? Or is that just a PR move where they say, man, the gig's up. We better do something to try to get out ahead of this because, you know, we're definitely going to be under different scrutiny and regulation next year. So the scrutiny and the controversy around PBMs nationally is that they've been helping themselves to too many plates at the buffet, right? Regardless of how they're doing it, the argument is that they're taking too much monetary value out of the system. And so in any new announcement that PBM, that the large PBMs make, the question shouldn't be what they're saying with their words. The question should be, did they actually go on a diet? Um, and in the announcements from Express Scripts and CBS Caremark, who both announced their own cost plus ish, cost plus ish models, they they were very open. In fact, op maybe too open in saying 
we don't think that this will have a material impact on the underlying costs from a consumer's or plant sponsor's perspective. And in fact, in some instances, it could cost more. So they all the fireworks go off, but at the end, it's the same environment, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I, I've been calling a lot of these attempts uh, cost plus kayfabe. And kayfabe, if you're unfamiliar with the term, actually originates in carnivals and professional wrestling. Essentially, the idea is presenting something that we know is fake as something as genuine to the audience. And the audience generally is in on it, knowing that it's not real. So we know that Mark Cuban and a lot of the independent cost plus pharmacies out there, you got your Freedom Pharmacy right down the road here in Pickerington, Ohio, Pharmacies that have unplugged from the insurance model are providing sticker prices that are a mere fraction of what typical pharmacies are offering. Now, if I was oversimplifying it, I would say pharmacies that serve insurance companies are overcharging for their medicines, right? But I understand drug how drug pricing works. If you are a pharmacy and you aim to plug into the insurance-based model and PBM model, you are highly incentivized to inflate your usual and customary prices, and you are punished, financially speaking, if you lower those usual and customary prices. So as such, if you're a pharmacy that aims to serve the insurance model, you are only viable by, high, by essentially creating bogus inflated usual and customary prices. The only reason that these independent pharmacies and Mark Cuban's pharmacy are able to do something that on its surface seems so revolutionary from a pricing perspective is not because they are good and all other pharmacies are evil. It is because they have made an explicit decision to unplug from a system that rewards them for higher prices and punishes them for low ones. As such, people are looking at these models and saying, wow, we need this. This is great. Why aren't we getting it? And I agree. If PBMs are in the business of finding lower priced medicines for consumers and plan sponsors, the preferred pharmacies in their networks would be the cash pharmacies and Mark Cuban's pharmacies, not the large specialty pharmacies or chain pharmacies or hell, even independent pharmacies that have bloated usual and customary prices that are plugging into the system as they are designed today. So onlookers are seeing this and saying, this is ridiculous. Why are we getting charged thousands of dollars for something that Freedom Pharmacy or Mark Cuban's pharmacy is selling for $50? Mm -hmm. And... PBMs are having to answer very difficult, uncomfortable questions to their plan sponsor clients as to why these medicines are so uncompetitively priced. And so they have two choices. They can go back to investors and say, we're not going to be giving as much money back to you in returns, or they could start meeting the marketplace where its demands are by engaging in fake contortions to say we're doing what those guys are doing, right? We're we're now we're cost plus two without actually again taking the necessary diet to provide the savings that those other models are providing in the marketplace today. Hmm. And is that what is that fair to say that some of the Medicaid, um, some of the state Medicaid departments are doing that when they go to a for a pharmacy they go to a cost plus twelve dollars, thirteen dollars, whatever it is, dispensing fee? Is that similar? just in their space? Conceptually, it's, 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 it's taking us back to pharmacy's roots, right? Right. The old model of pharmacy was I buy a drug, I slap a markup on it, end of the day, right? And so Medicaid fee-for-service programs operate in a similar model where they 
try to find some approximation of the underlying cost of the drug and have a set transparent dispensing fee on top of that. Now, CMS requires that ultimately that fee is calculated using cost of dispensing surveys, which aim to try and approximate the break-even proposition for a pharmacy. So if the cost of dispensing is around $10, the idea behind Medicaid programs is we're going to use NADAC or AAC or something to that effect to approximate the underlying cost of the drug and then slap that $10 right on top of that so that at a minimum, the pharmacy's service to Medicaid beneficiaries isn't getting them below cost from an incentive perspective and then isn't paying them too much from an incentive perspective. So the intention is to get them essentially right at their break-even cost for doing business. Now, pharmacies might say that's not good enough, right? We deserve to make a profit, but understand that that's the philosophy of what Medicaid sure. fee-for-service programs are trying to achieve, which is what these new farm cash pharmacies are doing in concept as well. So if Express Scripts and CVS Caremark is moving toward this cost plus based and based reimbursement, um, I'm assuming everyone else is going to have to follow. You know, maybe Mark Cuban can get credit for kind of leading leading down that. But where do you see the fallout, the negativity for for the pharmacy? And with that in mind, why would pharmacies try to negotiate a better um, cost minus from their wholesaler? I mean, I don't care what my wholesaler's going to charge me because I'm just going to add up 20 percent on top of what that on top of that. And so I can just see prices actually going up. The, the, the biggest challenge here is the way that pharmacies are paid today. So we did a study with the Oregon State Pharmacy Association about a year ago where we had pharmacies turn over the reimbursement data to show us where they were losing money and where they were making money. And big picture, 80 pharmacies, about 15 percent of all the pharmacy retail pharmacies in the state of Oregon, what we found was that on 18 percent of the claims, pharmacies are being reimbursed below NADAC, meaning that they buy a drug, they don't get paid even for the cost of the drug. Now, pharmacies in general need about $10 in margin to break even. We're talking retail here. That could be different based upon your size or whether you're a long-term care pharmacy, you know, specialty pharmacy, et cetera, depending on the kind of service you're offering. For the sake of this conversation to say, pharmacies need about $10 in margin to break even. Well, so pharmacies are underwater on 18% of the claims. And essentially, they are getting below their cost to dispense and the cost of the drug, you know, on an overwhelming majority of those claims. So if you count the losses and then you count the profits that pharmacies make above the actual underlying cost of the drug, pharmacies don't hit profitability until the 75th percentile of claims that they dispense. Now, the really messed up part is pharmacies make 62% of their profits on 5% of the claims that they dispense. Now, what do we know about PBM contracts? PBM contracts have most favored nations clauses that say you can never charge anybody a price that's less than what you charge us. So your usual and customary price has to be the same for everybody. What they also do is they pay you using lesser of methodology, where they say, we're going to pay you based upon AWP minus, MAC, whatever it is, or your usual and customary price. So we'll never pay you more than that usual and customary price. And then they go out in the market, this differential margin distribution, what we like to call it, which is essentially underpaying you on some, giving you a reasonable rate on some, and then wildly overpaying you for some. Well, in general, from a pharmacy book of business perspective, you're taking so many losses and getting so many payments that are below your cost of dispense, you are heavily reliant on what we call the long end of the tail, those wildly overpaid drugs, to ultimately make the business math work. 
Well, if you're a pharmacy and you choose to lower your usual and customary price, you're chopping off your own financial legs. And so my biggest concern with a lot of the push towards cost plus as a concept is that sometimes we're talking about just capping the amount of margin from a pharmacy perspective. Well, if you're, if you're a pharmacy and all you can get is essentially no more than a certain amount and you don't bring up the bottom, right? Well, now you've basically made the model totally untenable. So from a, from a concept perspective, cost plus only works if you've done a really good job approximating the real underlying costs of the drug and ensuring that you have a set standardized compensation. I'm not telling you how much it needs to be, right? But a set standardized compensation or dispensing fee, if you will, that it layers over top of that foundation of the underlying cost of the drug. So if a wholesaler starts playing games, right? From a system perspective, you know, the idea is, is that, look, if a wholesaler is becoming a market outlier, you as a pharmacy will know very quickly if all of a sudden your payments in a cost plus model start running you dry. And so it's incumbent upon you to either beat up your wholesaler and get a better price or go shop the open market for something better. But then again, that's another reason why I like cost plus because a lot of people think, well, cost plus is an accountability measure for PBMs. It is, but it's also a better accountability measure for wholesalers as well. Mm. Good. Interesting. All right. Well, let's pivot a little bit. Let, let's pivot a little bit toward, you know, what, wh where you see pharmacy going with all of these things happening. We, we talked a little bit before the podcast started that one thing that I saw recently that I thought was interesting slash threatening was one of the major manufacturers, um, Eli Lilly is doing direct sales of their um, obesity products to patients what kind of threat or what kind of uh yeah what kind of threat do you see if that starts to be a model that is effective yeah i mean from a from a manufacturer's perspective i'm tremendously understanding of what they're trying to achieve right yeah so at the end of the day drug makers are in the business of selling drugs okay and what do we know about glp1s right now in the marketplace Employers are panicked. They think it's going to cost them too much. They don't want to cover it. Um, PBMs are getting big rebate kickbacks to entice them to cover it. Uh, patients have a huge demand for it. Some of them, you know, want it for diabetic purposes. Some of them want it for more cosmetic purposes. One could argue those cosmetic purposes do have an overlapping health benefit as well. Uh, the problem for pharmacies is most pharmacies are losing their butts on these drugs. Pharmacies are getting significantly underpaid on a lot of these GLP-1s and are interested in dispensing them. So I know some pharmacies that have stopped inventorying them altogether. So if I'm a drug manufacturer, I have PBM shaking me down for bigger kickbacks, causing me to raise my price higher and higher. I have plan sponsors that are interested in covering the drug, and I have pharmacies that are incentivized to dispense the product. Not a good opportunity and not a good environment for me to sell more drugs. So the question then is, how could I start building pathways around this dysfunction? So what Eli Lilly is doing is essentially, you know, not too different conceptually from some of their direct patient assistance programs and things like that, but they are better architecting a more streamlined uh, supply chain, if you will, to ensure that patients ultimately can get the medicines at the net price 
instead of, you know, the bogus inflated uh, in, uh, sticker price, especially in the face of employers refusing to cover some of these drugs. Now, um, I think it's disruptive, uh, but I also think it's fragmenting. Um, you know, by creating essentially a new pharmacy for these one-offs, it was one of my one of one of the problems I had with discount card programs too, that would try and get you to basically move from pharmacy to pharmacy to get your onesie, twosie, threesie medicines. Obviously, the issue of policy, polypharmacy becomes significant, but it also starts fragmenting perhaps the medication prescribing pro process as well. Eli Lilly is partnering with TruePill in order to facilitate the distribution of these medicines through their pharmacies. Now, they're relying on, quote, independent prescribers uh, from a telepharmacy perspective. And I don't have an indictment of their desire to try to achieve that, although I question some of the incentive alignments between, you know, the um, telehealth providers, the pharmacy providers, and the actual manufacturer. But I think more importantly, I think it highlights perhaps a concern that we should have with telemedicine in general, at least telemedicine within the confines of more specialization, especially when it comes to medicines that are in high demand from a patient perspective. In general, from a business model perspective, this is a patient that's ultimately seeking out a medicine. Whether or not it has clinical value, they probably care very little about. Um, and so what they want is the drug. And what telemedicine can do is ultimately provide a very easy opportunity to get rubber stamping of prescriptions. And if play this out, right? If I'm a patient and I want a GLP-1, right? I'm gonna go to a, a telehealth provider. If that telehealth provider doesn't give me the medicine, then it didn't work, right? So I'll go find another prescriber to, to, to offer me that thing. And the system probably doesn't work very well from a holistic perspective of ultimately managing the patient and their disease states, right? Now, I don't think it's like the opioid crisis by any stretch, right? Where doctor shopping had very real and catastrophic consequences, but we're talking about something here that's obviously significantly less harmful from a public health perspective. But again, understand the enticements that the model is creating. Eli Lilly didn't do this to sell less drugs. They did it to sell more. So, I mean, it's, to me, to, to your point, Eli Lilly's not necessarily doing something, um, they're, they're doing something to sell more product, but also arguably to make it more accessible because it sounds like the demand from a patient perspective, they're running into roadblocks, whether that's the plan not wanting to pay for it, the prescriber not wanting to prescribe it, you know, they're running into roadblocks and all they want is the product. Um, so they're trying to solve that also from the perspective that they want to sell their product. Um, my concern, and you were alluding to it, is we can't keep having these I get my prescription from 15 different places because especially if it's outside of even any possible PBM or insurer network, there's no safety check. How do I know what else you're taking? You're, you want this, you're getting it from Eli Lilly Pharmacy or True Pill, but I don't know that you went to Walgreens and got these two medications and that you went to this independent and got these three medications and that you bought this thing from Canada. There's no safety net. And you're using a prescriber that isn't your primary care prescriber, so they don't even know. And I think that's a problem. And I think that's a problem. Yeah, why don't we do this? I mean, they can start doing with COVID vaccines or, or you know, anything else. Yeah, well, that, that was my yeah, biggest I argument with Paxlovid when it was first came out is they told us in certain states, 
Walgreens or Walmart's the only pharmacy that's going to get Paxlovid. Just have the nurse from the nursing home go to Walmart and pick up the Paxlovid script for the resident in the nursing home. And I'm like, what? <laughs> Not only logistically is that a nightmare, but you have no safety check for a drug that has multiple drug interactions because Walmart's filling it. The only drug they have on file for that patient is that one. And the pharmacy that actually fills their scripts has all the rest of the information and there's no check. There's no safety check. Yeah, I, I don't. I, I think that these are obviously very significant concerns, not just with the Eli Lilly model by any stretch, but like just in yeah. general, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, because we don't have a straightforward approach to drug pricing, a lot of people are going to be very price sensitive and want to shop around. And what we know is that different pharmacies can yield different deals on different medicines. Some pharmacies, you know, will engage in loss leader strategies, right? And so it might make sense for a patient, financially speaking, only to basically start shopping around the marketplace. And we shouldn't discourage shopping, right? But the problem is, is that we, have a, we, we don't have a straightforward approach, approach to pricing, thus people are going to be more prone to doctor shopping, pharmacy shopping, et cetera. So yeah, to think, me, you know, I think, I think it really underscores the importance of shared information, shared medical history, shared mm -hmm. EHRs, medication mm -hmm. history, et cetera, because I don't think that these things necessarily need to be prohibited. Maybe there needs to be better oversight and accountability to ensure that we're doing legitimate prescribing and dispensing. But to me, a lot of the problems can be solved with better access to underlying medication and health record uh, history. No, I think you're 100% right. Um, we actually had a, a meeting the last few days on, we were talking primarily about vaccines, but just kind of comparing the healthcare system, the medication system, to the banking system and how you run around with your ATM card and you can get money from any ATM from any bank. You might have to pay a fee or whatever, but all of your information's on that card and you exchange it for the ability to get $20 out of an ATM. We don't have that with healthcare. We don't have the card that says, hey doc, here's who I am and all my medications. I'd like to get this medication. Is it okay? Can you prescribe it? Or hey pharmacy, here's what I'm getting. Here's all my medications. Can you make sure that it's safe and all those aspects of it? Um, so I think you're exactly right. That's a challenge and a problem. Great. Well, Tony, what's the next thing for 46 Brooklyn, three axis? Like, what's on the horizon? What are you guys excited about? Well, it's January, so it's prime time for brand manufacturers to update their prices. So the big thing we're working on right now is examining changes in, pre in prescription drug prices in the month of January. But the next big thing we're trying to look at is really digging further into specialty drugs. You know, we I, I thought that they were going to build statues of us around Columbus when we helped them with the spread pricing problem. But, you know, when we go to employers and plan sponsors, you know, the capital S spread pricing is, is kind of a thing that, you know, most people have kind of figured out as a scam. So the question then is, you know, as people eliminate that scam, what are they, what are PBMs going to move to next? And so, you know, there's a couple things. One is, you know, PBMs, again, aren't PBMs anymore. They're vertically integrating. They're taking over prescribing practices. Um, there's a slew of perverse incentives that go along with that vertical alignment, especially considering that the companies get kickbacks from drug manufacturers. Um, so, I mean, we're talking about significant influ uh, influence problems within a vertically integrated PBM health insurer provider monolith, right? But beyond that, um, 
in September, we did a joint investigative report with the Wall Street Journal examining big markups on specialty drugs compared to Mark Cuban's cost plus drug uh, pricing, not because necessarily we wanted to pick Mark Cuban, but because all the prices are available online for you to check, which, by the way, the new ESI and CBS programs will not be publishing their prices online. Um, but I digress. Um, in that report, we found that these otherwise very cheap medicines were being significantly overcharged to Medicare beneficiaries. So the interesting thing is we think that health insurers are in the business of trying to save money. So the question then is, how come the PBMs are so good at underpaying for most medicines, but then all of a sudden find their kryptonite when it comes to the medicines that are primarily being dispensed to the pharmacies that they own? And I think we all know the answers why, right? Well, the really cool thing was that after the Wall Street Journal published that article in September, um, Senators Elizabeth Warren and Mike Braun issued a call for an HHS investigation into not just the practice, but how the practice was being used to manipulate health plan medical loss ratio requirements. So if you're listening to this, you don't know what a medical loss ratio is. Under the Affordable Care Act, we essentially mandated that people buy health insurance. Well, anytime you mandate that somebody buy something, don't be surprised when whoever is selling whatever is being bought takes liberties with the underlying service and the cost of what's being provided. One of the attempted safeguards in that model was to create what we call a medical loss ratio, which is essentially a requirement that for every dollar invested in health premium dollars, 85% or more has to go for actual medical care. So what it essentially created was a profit cap for insurance companies. Well, so if I'm an insurance company and I'm publicly traded, I'm in the business of making more money. So if I can't grow market share and bring on more beneficiary lives, how can I make more money? Well, vertical integration will allow me to base, basically become price setter and price taker. So why are PBMs so poor at finding cheap deals on specialty meds? Well, it's because the same company is predominantly dispensing the drugs. And so essentially they get to cook the books, they get to pay themselves more, which creates more bandwidth to make more profit up top and below the line. So it's essentially creating two revenue opportunities from a plan perspective. Well, that's just one way that they can cook the books on a medical loss ratio. As vertical integration becomes more prevalent, and these large health insurer conglomerates start gobbling up more and more of healthcare, all of that creates more opportunity to pay themselves and distort those medical loss ratio requirements. So when it comes to what we're looking at, right, I wanna see more of these instances where PBMs are creating more favorable opportunities for themselves and not offering those same opportunities to traditional unaffiliated pharmacies. I'm just interested in that from a, from a good, uh, from a straightforward competition perspective in the pharmacy marketplace, right? But on the other end of that transaction, if you remove yourself from the pharmacy side of this, is a plan sponsor who's getting wildly overcharged and getting less value for their health insurance benefit, right? So I'm very interested in diagnosing more of those types of instances because it's an inherent incentive in the current model. And I think we would be foolish to assume that all of a sudden these plans will find you know the financial Jesus, if you will, and change the way that they're doing business. Because as I said before, they they're not finding they're not they're not going on a diet, right? They're finding new ways to make more money off the same things. So we need to, I think, have better accountability and transparency in the incentives that are driving their behavior.
It's awesome. I mean, I love it. Uh, Antonio, as always, awesome. Thanks for being here. Thanks for uh, doing what you do to try to help pharmacy better compete and work against some of these factors that make it challenging um, for all of us out there that are working in the space. So we appreciate you being here, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk again, talk again soon. And I want to commend you on your selection, on, on your hat. Go Steelers, go Pittsburgh. <laughs> That's right, baby. <laughs> we will talk about that. <laughs> well, thanks, everybody, for Great watching. We'll you see you on the Thank next you. Uh, podcast episode. Thanks.